we have the joy of continuing summer sermon series on pleasing God this morning. This is sermon number five. And as I reminded us last week, we're trying to build a house this summer. And the house looks like this. We laid the first, found, uh, first foundation, the main foundation in the first three sermons, talking about what God wants and what his will is and how to pursue it and why we should make it our aim to pursue it. And now we're in the this, this second section of a couple of sermons on the framework. We're just kind of building the, the outline of the house. But Lord willing, starting next week, we're going to start moving furniture in and getting really practical as we work on uh, this subject of pleasing God. So we laid uh, part of the framework last week by talking about faith and the importance of relying on God to please Him, that the Lord does not take pleasure in our strength and our abilities, but rather in trusting Him. And so we are going to look this week at the essence of what he's called us to trust, which is Christ for salvation, namely the gospel and why the gospel itself pleases God. You'll see that here in Colossians chapter 1. Look at verse 19. We're going to focus in on verses 19 through 22 of Colossians chapter 1 this morning, but you'll see why I chose this particular theme because you'll see it in verse 19. Paul writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, for in him, that's in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So in other words, Christ delights the Father in his saving work, that this was God's heart. We know this, John three sixteen, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his Son. It delighted the heart of God for Christ to take on human form, the Son of God to take on human form, to be born of a virgin, to live in this world, obedient to the Father, taking that life to the cross, dying for our sin, rising again, and entering back to his, into his Father's presence. Now, you, you might be thinking this morning, we know that gospel, we love that gospel, we sing about that gospel, we trust that gospel, and I would say to all that, amen. And the way the gospel is presented in the New Testament is that it's just as much for Christians as it is for non-Christians. Right When Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, I want to write to you brothers and remind you of the gospel that I preached to you. And then he says, Christ was died and was buried and was raised. And you might think, well, why didn't the Corinthians say, we know that, Paul. You know, we got it, okay? But he says, he writes to the Christians and he tells them the gospel again. And in the Colossians chapter 1, he's writing to a church and he's telling them the gospel again. There's a theological reason for that. And the reason is, we need to think of the gospel more than just the first step in a staircase of biblical truth. Rather, we need to think of it as a hub of a wheel. Okay, don't think of it, don't think of the gospel as a staircase. The gospel is the first, step, the first step, and then we just kind of move on beyond then. No, it's the hub. You never get beyond the hub of the wheel. The hub of the wheel is the main central reality around which everything else gets arranged. And that's the way we need to think about the gospel. The gospel is not a basic truth from which we move on to deeper truths. It is the deeper truth. It is the main truth. It is the central truth from which all other truth flows. So the gospel is defined here for us in Colossians chapter 1, and I want to give us that definition up front, and then we're going to talk about it as we move through the sermon. So what is the gospel? Christians talk about the gospel a lot. What is it? Well, it has some hard news to it first. The gospel means good news, but it, in order for something to be good news, you have to have bad news. So the bad news is that the universe 
is wearing down all the time and breaking down all the time, and we are also more sinful and rebellious against God than we ever realized. It's both of those things. It's both a statement about what's happening in creation, and it's a statement about what's happening to us as God's creatures. But the freeing good news of the gospel is that God, through the person and work of Jesus, plans to restore both the universe and his people to their original beauty and glory. Now, it's that emphasis on the both, both the universe and his people that I want to focus on this morning. Because I believe oftentimes when we get to talking about the gospel, we can have a somewhat truncated or reductionistic view, as though it only concerns our souls and our bodies. But you see what Paul says here in Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 through 22, is that the gospel includes not just what God's doing for us as individuals, but also what God's doing to rid sin from his creation. Let's read these verses one more time, and I want you to see it in Colossians 1, beginning at verse 19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So there's, that's, the, that's Christ living among us. But why? Verse 20. Through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now that's not a statement that everybody's going to be saved. That's not a statement that we believe in universalism and that everybody's going to come to... Come, come under the, the blood of Christ and finally be made peace with God. He doesn't say all people. He says all things. All things are inanimate things. They're things in creation. He makes that clear um, in verse 17. If you'll just ratchet back a couple of verses. It says Christ is before all things, and in him all things hold together. What's he talking about there? Well, he's talking about that Christ existed prior to creation, and he is before all that, and he's the one who is sustaining the creation. Hebrews 1.3 says that Christ sustains the universe by the word of his power. You go back one more verse into verse 16. For by him all things were created. So this all things phrase is referring to creation. It's referring to things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. All things, Paul says, were created through him. So it's talking about creation. Sin has done something to our world, right? We see it every day on the news, unfolding, and it's been happening since Genesis 3. There is breakdown and discord and decay taking place all over our world. And the gospel addresses that. But the gospel also addresses the individuals who need to turn to Christ. Look at verse 21. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he's now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So he's talking about Christians, talking about those who have come to Christ for the forgiveness of their sin. So you notice he uses this word reconciliation twice, right? He talks about reconciling all things in verse 20, and he talks about reconciling us, that is believers, in verse 22. So the cross work of Jesus, the gospel, has what I'm calling a wide-angle lens, and a narrow lens. Okay, the wide-angle lens is in verse 20. It includes everything, all of creation that's been affected by sin. We sing about it in Joy to the World, right? He comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. 
and it's all over the world, okay? But he also has specific, a narrow lens that's focused on reconciling people to God. So let's get into that. We're going to talk this morning about that wide and narrow lens of the gospel and the implications that it has for how we live the Christian life. So here's my outline. First of all, introduction to the gospel. Second, instruction on the gospel. Third, implications of the gospel. So first of all, introduction to the gospel. As I just said, the gospel contains both a wide-angle lens and a narrow lens. Now, to be clear, this is not two gospels. Okay, there are not two Gospels. It's one Gospel viewed from two different perspectives. We might call these two perspectives the macro and micro perspective, or the universal and the individual perspective. But for the sake of simplicity, I'm thinking about a camera, and I'm using the wide angle and the narrow. We might, if we talk about our phones, we might talk about the horizontal and the vertical. Okay, when you think, think horizontal, includes a lot more, gets a little bit more space in the picture. Vertical, not so much, it's right up on you. Okay, so when we're talking about wide angle, we're talking about all that the gospel addresses. And when we talk about narrow perspective, we're talking about individual, individual people. So, as I've already said, the wide angle view is in verse 20, and the narrow lens is in verse 21 and 22. Both lens have reconciliation in view. And the wide lens has to do with the reconciliation of all things to God, and the narrow lens deals with the reconciliation of individual people to God. Okay, we got that? All right. Now, typically, the church has not held these two perspectives together well. Now, I'm going to try to define these somewhat broadly and give us some examples, but we might, for the sake of simplicity, let's just call them group A and group B, Okay. Group A is the verse 20 gospel, okay? They would, they would say that we love this. We love that Christ came to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Their definition would be something like this. The gospel is the good news that God is going to renew and remake the whole world through Christ. They would define the gospel as the good news that God is going to renew and remake the world free from sin, all through the, the presence and the power and the work of Jesus Christ. And so their focus is on issues of mercy and justice and cultural transformation of society, and the focus tends to be more corporate and broad. They would preach a creation, fall, redemption, consummation gospel, and it would be historically liberal and would focus more on the material aspects of this world than the spiritual aspects of this world. And there's an element of this, brothers and sisters, even in liberalism, that's true. Now, liberalism as a system of belief is counter to the gospel. But this aspect of emphasizing the importance of the physical creation in the gospel is right. God does intend to renew the entire universe. He will restore people and places and things to their original very good status as described in Genesis 1. The Bible tells us the world is not the way it's supposed to be. And because of this, people and creation itself, according to Romans 8, groan in anticipation of all things being made new again, restored to their original beauty and wholeness before sin entered the world. So what does this mean? 
Well, it means that life in the present world can include seasons of joy and splendor, satisfying friendship or romance, a new car, straight A's, an athletic victory, a delicious meal, beautiful music. But there's also much of life that's broken and difficult. Frustration in work, pain in relationships, financial strain, sickness, death. And in spite of the fact that all things eventually break down, even in the worst of circumstances, those who live under the saving power of Christ can also live with hope. Though things aren't perfect now, it will be made right when God renews all things. So that's group A. Okay? What about group B? Well, group B may find themselves more comfortable in verses 21 and 22. They're going to focus, no, we got got individuals. Individuals who are alienated from God, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. That's where we need to focus. They would define the gospel as the good news that God is reconciling sinners to himself by the substitutionary death of Jesus on the cross. They would define the gospel as what is the message a person must believe in order to be saved. So the focus is on faith and repentance. It's more individualistic and narrow. It, it, instead of saying that the gospel is creation, fall, redemption, consummation, they may say the gospel is God, man, Christ response. It's historically fundamentalistic, and its focus is on the spiritual. Now, they are absolutely right. The gospel focuses on personal trust in God's heroic rescue through Christ. Jesus, knowing the helplessness of the human condition, gave himself as a sacrifice for those who would place their trust in his gracious gift, a gift that's both unmerited and unearned by us. Jesus came and lived a perfect life and died a sacrificial death, not to buy us a second chance, but to stand in our place as our substitute before God. Everything we needed to do to achieve peace with God, Jesus did for us. In our place and on our behalf, he died the death we should have died so that we would never be condemned. And he lived the life that we should have lived so that God would declare us blameless and lovely in his sight. And because of what Jesus did as our substitute, those who trust in him and receive his free gift can truly say this, as far as God is concerned, everything that's true about Jesus is true about me. God regards me as blameless and beautiful. He loves me as much as he loves Jesus. He gives me credit for the good that Jesus did, and he puts all the blame on Jesus for all the wrongs I have done and will do. Amen. Now, Don Carson says the following. The two groups, those who are maybe are in verse 20, and those who are more comfortable in verse 21 and 22 of Colossians 1, tend to talk past each other. When a group B believer asks the question, what is the gospel? And here's the answer provided by a group A person. Inevitably, he or she feels the cross has been lost. But when a group A believer asks the question, what is the gospel? And here's the answer provided by a group B person. Inevitably, he or she feels the response is too individualistic, too constrained, not driven by the sweep of eschatological expectation and ultimate hope. So, group B would respond to group A by saying that your gospel's too broad and it's pushing the cross out of its central place. And when people in Scripture ask, what must I do to be saved? The answer was to repent of sin and believe in Jesus, not something about a coming new creation. However, group B largely ignores the end-time hope of the gospel, which is a renewed creation. 
Now, group A would respond to group B by saying, your gospel is too narrow, and it doesn't take into account all that the Bible says about what constitutes the good news. The good news includes the resurrection of the body and the new heavens and the new earth. However, group A would define sin in almost exclusively corporate terms and misses the Bible's emphasis on the offense of individual sin to God himself and his personal wrath toward those who commit it. So my point is that in order to preach this gospel faithfully, we need to hold to both. We need to hold to a narrow lens that requires faith and repentance for people to be reconciled to God and a wide-angle lens that includes the entire hope of Christianity. So that's the instruction that I wanted to give us. Now, point number two, instruction on the gospel. Sorry, that was the introduction, now the instruction. Now, I I want to show you that this wide-angle and narrow lens is presented as the gospel in the Bible, okay? It's both. Now, remember, it's one gospel, same gospel. They don't contradict each other, but they're viewed from two different angles. So here's the, let's look at the wide-angle lens first, which includes all that God is doing to reconcile the effects of sin and creation and remove it and to create a new heavens and a new earth. All right, Matthew 4.23. This is where Jesus begins his ministry right after his baptism. Matthew writes, And he went through all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Now, he's preaching a gospel, but he's healing, and he's freeing people from affliction. So the gospel that Jesus preached was a message that the kingdom has dawned, those who repent and those who repent will enter it, but it addresses the physical, the real physical needs of people. What about Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15? Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. So which is it, Jesus? Is it Matthew 4.23? Or is it Mark 1.14 and 15? Well, it's both. He's calling people to repent and turn from their sin, but he's also healing and caring and freeing people from affliction because he knows that that's an end-time hope that the gospel is offering when the kingdom has come in its fullness. Luke 4.18 The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Remember when Jesus is in the synagogue and he unrolls the scroll of Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of the sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Now this is the Old Testament passage from which Jesus launches his public ministry. It's Isaiah 61. And this, the word good news, as it's used in Isaiah 61 is referring to the full-orbed establishment of God's kingdom rule in the earth. Now we know from the New Testament that the kingdom has come in the person of Christ. It is coming now as people are being brought into the kingdom through repentance and faith. And it will come in its fullness when Christ returns. So oftentimes when Christ comes into the world in his earthly ministry, he's giving people foretastes of that. That's why he's healing. That's why he's casting out demons. That's why he's removing affliction. That's why he's raising people from the dead. That's why he's healing sickness. Because it's a foretaste of what's coming in the fullest expression of the kingdom when he returns again. Acts 13, 32. 
Paul says, And we bring you the good news that what God has promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled for us, to us by raising Jesus. Now, verse 38 is very clear that the good news that Paul brought was the forgiveness of sin that comes through Christ. But in verse 32 of Acts 13, the good news is said to be that which God promised to the fathers by raising Jesus. Now, surely God's promises to the fathers that are now fulfilled in Christ includes, but is not limited to the forgiveness of sins. What did God promise Abraham? Everything. Everything. A land, a people, and it's, every, it's, an, it's a worldwide inherited blessing. So that's a wide-angle view. Let's focus on the narrow, the narrow lens. Acts 10, verse 36 through 43. As for the Lord that he sent, as for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. To, all, to him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So Peter says that the gospel he preaches is that of peace through Jesus Christ, by which he means the forgiveness of sins through the name of Christ. So amen. The gospel is the forgiveness of sins offered through the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 1, 16 and 17. Again, a narrow lens view. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, that is the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So Paul defines the gospel in terms of salvation and the righteousness of God that comes to us through faith. Now, two more. 1 Corinthians 1, 17 and 18. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. So Paul has no problem with saying the gospel is about the cross. It's the cross of Christ. To preach the cross of Christ is to preach the gospel. And then 1 Corinthians 15, 1-5. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures that he was buried that he was raised on the third day. So, which perspective is carried out and emphasized in the New Testament? Both. <laughs> Both perspectives. The Bible uses the word gospel in two different but highly related ways. Sometimes the Bible talks about the gospel in a narrow way to describe specifically the forgiveness of sins through the substitutionary death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But sometimes the Bible talks about the gospel in a wide sense to refer to all that God promises to fulfill in Christ, including not only the forgiveness of sins, but also everything that flows from it. The establishment of the kingdom of God on earth, the resurrection of the body, and the new heavens and the new earth. We can thus summarize the gospel as follows. Here's, here's my summary. Through the person and work of Jesus Christ, God fully accomplishes salvation for us, rescuing us from judgment for sin and into fellowship with him, narrow lens, and then restores the creation in which we can enjoy our life together with him forever. Wide lens. I'll read it one more time. Through the person and work of Jesus Christ, 
God fully accomplishes salvation for us, rescuing us from judgment for sin and into fellowship with Him. That's the narrow lens. And then restoring the creation in which we can enjoy our life together with Him forever. That's the wide lens. So you might say the narrow lens answers the question, what do I have to do to be saved? It's a legitimate question. You need to repent of sin and trust in Christ, who will be your substitutionary Savior. But if you ask, what is the whole good news that Christianity offers? What is, the, what is the work of Christ? What is all that he has accomplished? Well, it includes the resurrection of your body, the new heavens and a new earth, and the, and the removal of sin from every single area of this entire cosmos. That is the gospel too. That's the fullest expression of the gospel. Now, with that, I hope helpful summary out of the way, I want to give us 10 brief implications of that. Application time. What are the implications of understanding the gospel that way? From understanding the gospel from a Colossians 1, 20 and 21 and 22 perspective. Okay, so I just want to remind us where we've been. Gather back together, huddle in the room, team meeting. Okay, here's where we've been so far. Colossians chapter 1, verse 20 says that Christ came to reconcile to himself all things. That's the wide lens. And then verse 21 and 22 emphasize the narrow lens that we who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he's now reconciled through the body of Christ by his death. So what are the implications of understanding a wide angle and a narrow angle lens on the gospel? Here's the first one. The New Testament calls the specific narrow message of forgiveness of sins through Christ, the gospel. Okay? So, I would say that our, you know, people who lean in an individualistic, maybe more fundamentalistic direction are absolutely right when they say that unless we are preaching the forgiveness of sins, we do not have the gospel. Those who would argue something like, if you're just preaching the forgiveness of sins through Christ and not God's intention to remake the world, you're not preaching the gospel, they're wrong. Because the New Testament says that's the gospel. Both Paul and Peter and Jesus seem to be quite happy to say that they preached the gospel if they had told people about the forgiveness of sins through the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. The New Testament calls the specific narrow lens of the forgiveness of sins through Christ, the gospel. That's point number, that's implication number one. So we never need to be ashamed of that, brothers and sisters. We preach the forgiveness of sins offered through Jesus Christ. Second, the narrow lens of the gospel is the way into the wide lens. The wide lens of the gospel must necessarily include the narrow. What do I mean by that? Unless we're preaching the forgiveness of sins... People don't get a benefit from the wide angle. Nobody's getting a resurrected body in glory that hasn't been reconciled to God in this life. They'll get a resurrected body to suffer eternally in. Nobody's getting the new heavens and the new earth as their eternal inheritance who's not reconciled to God in this life. The narrow lens of the gospel is not just part of the wide lens. It's the door to get into it. Okay? A person doesn't get to enjoy the broad blessings of the kingdom of God except by individualizing the narrow message of the cross by being forgiven of their sins through personal trust in the person and work of Christ. The broad blessings of the gospel 
are only attained by means of the narrow gate that leads to life. That's point number two. Number three, those who argue that the gospel is just the declaration of the kingdom are simply wrong. The gospel is not the declaration of the kingdom merely. It's the declaration of the kingdom together with the means of entering it. Jesus says in Mark 1, when he comes on the scene, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I'm here. The king has arrived. Repent and believe in the gospel. So this is crucial, and it's the difference between a gospel and a non-gospel. To proclaim the inauguration of the kingdom and the new creation and all the rest without proclaiming how people can get in by repenting and being forgiven of their sins through faith in Christ and his atoning death is to preach a false gospel. It's a non-gospel. Indeed, it's to preach bad news because you've told people about this wonderful world that they're not going to enter. There's no hope of being included in that new creation unless you have the Savior. D.A. Carson says, to preach the demands, characteristics, and promises of the kingdom, both now in its inauguration and finally in its consummation, without making clear what secures the whole, is not to preach the gospel, but only a tired and tiring moralism. The heart of the gospel is what God has done in Jesus, supremely in his death and resurrection, period. It's not personal testimony about our repentance. It's not a few words about our faith response. It's not obedience. It's not the cultural mandate or any other mandate. Repentance, faith, and obedience are, of course, essential and must be rightly related in light of Scripture. But they are not the good news. The gospel is the good news about what God has done. Because of what God has done in Christ Jesus, the gospel necessarily includes the good that has been secured by Christ and his cross work. Thus, it has a present and an eschatological, that's just a big word that means end times, dimension. We announce the gospel. So, number four. To say that the wide lens is somehow something in addition to the gospel or a distraction from the real gospel is also wrong. So long as the question is, what is the whole good news of Christianity? The wide lens is not something outside the gospel. It's the biblical gospel in its fullest sense. In fact, if we don't include the broad, wide lens of the gospel in our narrow presentations, Christians and perhaps non-Christians hearing the message will get the impression that God doesn't give a lick about this world. All he wants to do is take our souls to heaven with him. But all this is going to get burned to dust. Brothers and sisters, that's not the gospel. That's a false gospel. That lies about our God. God cares about this world. He's going to redeem it. His son's blood bought its purging and its renewal. And so we need to care about it too. We need to care about all that God has accomplished through the work of Christ. Not less than the renewal of the earth and not less than the, the, the reconciliation of individuals to God through the work of Christ. But we need to understand that God is not just concerned with the individual souls of human beings. He's also concerned with the sin that is present in his creation. Fifthly, grasping the fullness of the gospel in the New Testament should make Christians passionately interested in evangelistic conversion primarily 
but not to the exclusion of serving our neighbor and working for peace and justice in the world. Here's where we get a little controversial. Preaching the whole gospel, announcing the arrival of God's kingdom, also includes preaching against all manner of principalities and powers of this dark world. That includes racism. That includes injustice. That includes abortion. That includes any number of vile evils that are present in our world that will not be included in the new kingdom of God when it comes in its fullness. Psalm 89 verse 14 says that from God's throne comes righteousness and justice. They are always to be balanced side by side. Here's what Tony Evans says. Tony Evans says, Righteousness is the moral standard of right and wrong to which God holds people accountable based on his divine standard. Justice is the equitable and impartial application of God's moral law in society. God desires and requires his children to juxtapose both in our daily doings. God wants to protect the life of the unborn in the womb, but he wants to see the justice of life once born to the tomb. In other words, God wants a whole life agenda and not a term agenda. But unfortunately, all lives aren't valued the same way in our country right now, and they ought to be because every person is created in the image of Almighty God. So what I'm saying here is the narrow lens forces us to focus on evangelistic conversion. People have got to be made right with God. We can't just go out and say, well, we're going to make the world a better place, and we're going to do, do lots of nice things and care for people, but never give them the real hard news of the gospel. That, no, we can't do that. But neither do we say, God is not concerned about any of these things that are existing in the world right now. He is concerned about them. Now, the gospel, being reconciled to God, is primary, but that doesn't mean we don't speak to them. Number six, it is wrong to call a person a Christian simply because they're doing good things and following Jesus' example. To be a Christian is to be a partaker of the blessings of the kingdom, which requires that one must first go through the gate, that is, come to Christ by faith and have your sins forgiven through his atoning death on the cross. Remember Pilgrim's Progress? This is the most helpful example I know of, where John Bunyan tells the story about the characters Mr. Formalist and Mr. Hypocrisy. Christian meets them on the path to the celestial city, and after a moment's conversation, he realizes that they jumped the wall. They jumped the wall to get uh, on the path to the celestial city. They didn't go through the wicked gate. They didn't go through the narrow way. They jumped the wall. And the upshot was these two are not Christians, regardless of how well they're now navigating the path. They're just formalists and they're hypocrites. No one is a Christian who has not come to the crucified Jesus in repentance and faith for the forgiveness of their sins. Period. No one is a Christian who has not come to the crucified Jesus in repentance and faith for the forgiveness of their sins. A person can live like Jesus lived all they want, but unless they go through the gate of atonement, faith, and repentance, they've not come to Christ. They've just jumped the wall. They've just jumped the wall. And you can't jump the wall and get into the kingdom. You have to go through the narrow gate, which is the cross of Jesus Christ in repentance and faith in him alone. Next, I've lost count. Seven? I think I'm seven now. Yes. Seven. I've got them labeled as letters here, and that's confusing. Seven. It's wrong to ever say that non-Christians are doing kingdom work. Why is that? 
While a non-Christian that works for human reconciliation or justice is a good thing, that's a good thing, it's not kingdom work because it's not done in the name of the king. So C.S. Lewis was wrong in his Chronicles of Narnia, those of you who know the story. You can't do, do good things in the name of Tash and expect Aslan to be okay with it. Aslan's not okay with it. Aslan wants things done in his name. Now, three more, then we'll wrap up. The ultimate goal of all mercy ministry is to point the world back to the cross. The ultimate goal of all mercy ministry is to point the world back to the cross. For instance, I'm going to give us an, just a practical example. Say there's, a, you know, a barber, and he's not a Christian, and his barber shop is in, in I, my grandfather was a barber, so this, this, this rings home to me. I used to go to my grandfather's barber shop, and it was, in the, it was in a poorer area of Louisville when I was growing up, and that place needed some work. Man, did it need some work. But boy, did guys like to gather there. You would think all those guys gathering there, they could paint the walls every now and then. But they didn't. They just gathered to read the newspaper and talk. But that place could use some renovation. Now imagine that me as a young Christian, I don't like to use positive examples of myself, but I just get this burning uh, desire to want to help my grandfather and renew his barber shop and take, you know, and so I recruit, uh, we recruit some guys and gals from our church and we go down there and we, and we want to renew and renovate the barber shop all in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, if we're going to do that, eventually I'll need to get around to telling my grandfather this. Look, we're doing this because we serve a God who loves you and who cares about things like beauty and order and peace. In fact, the Bible says, and I believe that God is doing something so great that one, th one day he's going to recreate a world where paint won't peel and trees won't die and barbershops won't need renovation. But I don't think you're going to be part of it because of your sin. If you repent and believe in Christ, you'll be there with me. So you see what's happening there? There's mercy. There's real love. There's real tangible compassion. Real mercy ministry that's pointing people back to the cross. That's reminding them of their individual need. It's doing verse 20 of Colossians 1 and speaking 21 and 22. It's saying, we care about a God who's going to reconcile all things to himself. But listen, you're alienated and hostile toward God and you need to come to him. It's both and. Number nine, two more. The emphasis in this age, in this age, during this time period, before the return of Christ, must be the narrow lens of personal reconciliation with God as the narrow gate into the wider blessings of the kingdom. Now, we got to emphasize that because it doesn't matter how much good we do in this world. It's all going to, I mean, it's going to be for naught. Our labor in the Lord will be in vain unless it's connected to the message of the gospel, the full message of the gospel, including repentance and faith. Look back at John. I want to give you a practical illustration of this. Look back at John chapter 6 and see what Jesus did in this case. This is one of the most helpful incidents in Jesus' ministry where he, he brings together the wide lens of the kingdom, the wide lens of the gospel, and the narrow emphasis on repentance and faith and helps, helps us navigate how to do that as his followers. John 6, let's begin reading at verse 22. Now remember, Jesus in the beginning of John 6 has just fed the homeless practically. He's fed 5,000 men plus women. He's provided free meals for people. So a church that cares about meal ministry and feeding people is not doing anti-gospel work unless 
they don't include what Jesus says. Okay? So he's just done mercy ministry. He's just gone out and fed people and cared about people. And he cared about them so much, they showed up again the next day wanting another meal. Look at verse 22. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must me do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Does he do mercy ministry? Yes. Does he call people to repentance and faith? Yes. He does the wide lens and the narrow lens. He emphasizes that, hey, in the kingdom of God, nobody's going hungry in the kingdom of God. But you may be starving forever if you don't come to the bread of life. You will starve forever. You can get all the meals you want in this life and your belly can be full and it's ready. I mean, it's big, it's ready, it's full. But you go to hell. Because you didn't embrace the bread of life. So again, this is what I love about one of the statements um, in one of our Confessions of Baptist Faith and Message of 2000, which we share with Southern Baptists all around the world. One of the sentiments that's expressed in the, in the BFM 2000, Section 1 on the Christian and Social Order, says this. Means and methods used for the improvement of society and the establishment of righteousness among men can be truly and permanently helpful only when they are rooted in the regeneration of the individual by the saving grace of God in Jesus Christ. It's both. <laughs> the only way that our acts of mercy are truly and permanently helpful is to be connected to faith and repentance in Jesus Christ. As one pastor reminded me this week, the gospel is our only hope. Only through the gospel can people forgive the sins of the past and present. Only through the gospel can the godless spirit of racism or violent revolution be forgiven. Only through the gospel can the sins of this nation be lamented without despair. Only through the gospel can the graces of this nation be appreciated without pride. Only through the gospel can people of salt and light be formed to leaven the world with the goodness of Jesus. And only through the gospel can anyone escape this sinful country and world and go to the country whose builder and maker is God. Now let me conclude. Last one, point 10. Preaching the wide lens gospel that includes the narrow lens reminds us that God created both the material and the spiritual and is going to redeem both the material and the spiritual. Now this helps us recover the goodness of God's created world and destroys a sacred secular view of life that belittles leisure and work and family in favor of prayer and Bible study and worship. All of life is to be lived in God's presence to God's glory. It is this gospel that makes room for our full human experience, both in this age and the age to come. In the age to come, are we going to rest? Yes. Are we going to work? Yes. Are we going to play? Yes. Are we going to worship? 
Yes. Are we going to study the Bible? Yes. It's all here in the kingdom now, too. We live with that in mind. Ray Ortland says, The gospel offered both the prospect of personal intimacy with God forever and a renewed world of peace and righteousness. It isn't just one or the other. God has a plan for you and for this whole world. The Lord Jesus Christ died for this, and he will not be denied. He will not be denied. So let me conclude. This is the real conclusion, not like the three conclusions I said last week, which took me 30 minutes to get to. Brothers and sisters, if we understand all of this and all the implications of the narrow and the wide lens of the gospel, but we don't share it, if we don't leave this place being more committed to be Psalm 67 Christians who open our mouths and preach the gospel, I'm afraid all this is in vain. I'm afraid all this is in vain. We have got to share the gospel. 1 Thessalonians 2.4 says the following, We have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak to please God. This sermon series is about pleasing God. And you will know for sure that every single moment you open your mouth and you declare what God has done in Christ, both for individual repenting sinners and for the universe that is to come, and you speak that in, in, in audible, intelligible words to people, God is smiling from heaven. You, will, you are so pleasing to God in that moment. So if you are zealous to please God, brothers and sisters, we must be zealous to share the gospel. Eric Geiger says, a church can excel at anything and everything else. But if the church fails to make disciples, she's wandered from her fundamental reason for existence. C.S. Lewis says, the church exists for nothing else but to draw them into Christ. If they are not doing this, all the cathedrals, clergy, missions, sermons, even the Bible itself are simply a waste of time. God became man for no other purpose than that we would speak his gospel. So let us do it, empowered by his Holy Spirit, believing that in doing so, we are pleasing to him. Let's pray and then we'll sing. Worship team, please come. Father, we are so grateful for your gospel. We are so grateful for the fact that this gospel takes into account chiefly our personal offense to you and our sin. And it has dealt with it decisively through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for our sin and for our salvation. We are grateful to be partakers of that. And if there's anyone in here this morning who has yet to come to personal faith in Christ, who's just jumped the wall, just trying to do a Christian thing, trying to live a Christian life, but never come to Christ, never collapsed on Jesus and said, Jesus, be my Savior. You're my only hope. I can't keep coming to church and not come to you. I can't keep trying to follow your ways and not come to you. I got to come to you. I got to come to you. And may they come to you this morning in just simple faith saying, Lord Jesus, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And you will save them. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So, Lord, may they call upon you this morning. And for all of us who are here under Christ, in Christ, under the banner of your gospel, thank you so much for the future hope we have, for the future hope of a, of a creation that is not functioning the way it's currently functioning, with all the rancor and discord and difficulties that are facing us as a nation, and all the, all the difficulties we see around the world with death and sin and all the problems that come from sin. 
Lord, we are grateful that one day you're going to speak that out of existence and you are going to bring in a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And until that day, may we preach that whole gospel, testifying to all people that one day that creation is coming and if they will repent of sin and turn to Christ, they'll be there too. So Lord, we pray that you will help us in these ways. Open our mouths Fill them with your word, with your good news, and help us to proclaim them to our family and our friends and our co-workers and our neighbors and all those with whom we come in contact for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with us and respond in worship as we sing the fourth.